Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Law. This is your host of the New Books and Law channel, Bobby Sharon, an associate in the Environmental Safety and Health Practice Group of Squire Sanders, working out of the firm's Cleveland, Ohio office. Today on the program, we are delighted to have Lawrence Goldstone to discuss his book, Birdmen, The Wright Brothers, Glenn Curtis, and the Battle to Control the Skies. Dr. Goldstone, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bobby. Nice to be here. Dr. Goldstone is a prolific author of fiction and nonfiction, notably among the latter category. Dr. Goldstone has authored three books on constitutional law written in a narrative style for a generalist audience. Inherently Unequal, The Betrayal of Equal Rights by the Supreme Court, 1865 to 1903, The Activist, John Marshall, Marbury v. Madison, and The Myth of Judicial Review, and Dark Bargain, Slavery, Profits, and the Struggle for the Constitution. His works are highly acclaimed, and his latest, the subject of our program today, is no exception. Not only has Birdman received numerous glowing reviews, it was the subject of a recent op-ed in the New York Times highlighting the lesser it offers from the past that are, as the columnist puts it, for our age as well. And so, Birdman, the Wright Brothers, Glenn Curtis, and the Battle to Control the Skies. That's quite an epic title, Dr. Goldstone. Well, choosing a title is something that in my business you do with some care because you want people to buy the book. Uh, And then you have to persuade your editor that your title will actually do that. The original title, the the subtitle was pretty much the same, but the original title was Air War, and then that changed to Birdman. Birdman was what the early aviators were called in the newspapers, and that seemed to have a, a, a less military focus. And and that's interesting to to jump ahead for a moment. That I was going to bring up several books that are similar in, in vain to this one, and that they seem to rely a lot on the great material that can be afforded by lawsuits. Um, and a, one very notable example of that is *The Power Broker* by Robert Caro. But a more recent one is the book by James Stewart, a former uh, attorney at Cravath, uh, *Disney War*. So that would have been great. We could have had uh, a series of books, all with war in the title, with uh, with with that are based in part on on litigation. Um, so I, I I might actually have to say I would have preferred Air War, but Birdman is 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 definitely intriguing and and is probably helping it move off the shelves. Um, and uh, did did you find? I mean, in in entitling that, were, were you referring to the the litigation between the Wrights and Curtis? Uh, yeah, I mean, the battle to control the skies was the battle in the courts. They didn't actually shoot at each other, although the Wright brothers would probably have loved to shoot at Curtis had they had the chance. Um, the, the battle took, it began essentially in 1906 when uh, Curtis, who was then building motors for dirigibles, visited Dayton, and there was an air show going on, and the, he met the Wright brothers, and the Wright brothers, as we will discuss later, after they flew in December of 1903, did not fly again publicly, really, until 1908. And so they were trying to sell their airplanes without demonstrating them, and they were, there was a certain lack of success because if you have a new invention, people actually want to see it work. So Curtis visited, and what, what transpired, how much information Curtis got from the Wright brothers has been a subject of contention now for over a century, and how much information the Wright brothers did transmit to Curtis probably was the pivotal uh, question in early aviation in America. And so the title is Birdman, and the the physical book, 
it is um, it's a hard hardbound volume uh, published by Ballantine Books, and on the cover we have a picture. Can you talk a little bit about the cover picture? The, the picture is actually of neither uh, uh, Curtis nor the Wright brothers. It is a picture of a man hanging from a glider. The the original uh, the the evolution the of aviation at the very end in the last decade before the Wright brothers flew was fascinating. There was a, a German named Otto Lilienthal who took over 2,000 glides with man-made wings. You know, whenever they show uh, on the TV, whenever they show crackpots, they always show people strapping on wings. Well, Lilienthal did it, but he did it after thousands and thousands and thousands of measurements of different airfoils and successfully glided with these wings. He would run down a hill in Rheinau in Germany outside of Berlin and glide and take measurements and continually improve the process. That, so the first movement toward powered flight was unpowered flight. So there's a picture of a glider, a picture on the cover of a glider with a man hanging from it, because that's what they did, trying to figure out the best way to create an airfoil. Uh, which means actually technically means the shape of a wing. And then in in the title page, there's a there's a picture there that that is at least reminiscent of Kitty Hawk. Is that is that what that is, or is it? Uh, it is. It 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 may well be. Um, titles and jacket design are tend to be something that the author is given, and they <laughs> you know in the contract they say, well, we will consult you, and by <laughs> consulting you, they say, this is what you're having. Actually, I, in this case, I love it. I, I love the, whoever designed it, I love the cover. Um, the cover used to be a, kind of a dark, a, kind of a metal blue, and my editor, who has red hair, changed it to pretty much the color of his hair, and it's much better, so that worked. And then the designer uh, had that picture on the inside, essentially the windswept dune picture, so I don't know where it came from, but I thought it was pretty evocative too. And the the book is filled with additional pictures, not in sort of the middle of the book. Turn to it and right. and see those, but but in text right. pictures, which um, is is vastly superior. I, the I have always thought so. Yeah, I, I have a, it, that that was a technique that was uh, initiated back in the 1990s, and I think a man named George Gibson at Walker Press was the first person to do it. Instead of putting these inserts in, he just put pictures throughout the text, and it helps because you come to, you've come to an, an image or a map. At the time, you actually need to use it, or when it refers to something you're reading, instead of having it just you know stuck in in the middle, so you have to keep leafing back and forth. And the illustrations, the great thing about them is that the Smithsonian has vast numbers of these fabulous images, which uh, you can access. You know, in some, if you're doing an art book, there's something, uh, there's something called Art Resource, and they essentially, you have to take out a mortgage to put illustrations of paintings in your book. But these are, are relatively inexpensive, and they're utterly glorious. So I was lucky in that regard. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the book? How did you come to write it? Well, it was, ag- it was, a, it was complete luck. I was doing a biography 
of a New York Yankee Hall of Fame baseball pitcher. I was co-authoring it with his daughter, which is another story. And it was a man named Lefty Gomez. And Lefty was famous for loving airplanes. And in 1937, he stopped pitching a World Series game to watch an airplane fly by. And I discovered in doing the biography that he had, that he had developed his love of aviation in 1915 as a 60-year-old boy when he went to the San Francisco World's Fair to see the greatest aviator of the age, a man named Lincoln Beachy, fly. So I did a little research and never heard of Lincoln Beachy. Nobody I knew had ever heard of him. And I discovered that Lincoln Beachy is probably, with apologies to Chuck Yeager, the greatest aviator ever to fly. He did things that were just absolutely unbelievable. You want an example? Sure. Okay. He's in, the, in an air show in Chicago in 1910. Remember... Open cockpits, no insulation, no, no, nothing to keep you from the elements. Beachy desperately wanted to break the altitude record, which at that time was 11,200 feet. And there are half a million people lining the lakefront in Chicago. On the last day of the meet, he takes his airplane up, but what he had discovered was that the only way to break the altitude record was to use all his fuel on the way up. So he goes up. It's near dusk. Half a million people are watching. He, he actually breaks the record. He gets to 11,600 feet. They had instruments that could measure it called a barograph. And starts to then circle down over the lake, where, of course, if he crashes, he's going to die. And all these half a million people see him come down. That propeller isn't moving because he's run out of fuel. And Beachy ends up landing not 200 feet from where he took off, which is a feat of flying in an open cockpit in a 1910 airplane that is absolutely astounding. So I did a little more research, and I discovered that there were a lot of these flyers who did amazing things. One in altitude and maneuvers and flying across the English Channel that nobody had ever heard of. So I proposed a book to my editor uh, called The Exhibitionists, and he said, well, you know, that's good, but nobody's ever heard of these people. It's a harder sell. Can you get the Wright brothers in it? So I was skeptical initially and reluctant because there's been so much written about the Wright brothers. But when I started researching the Wright brothers, I discovered that the, uh, there was a whole story of the Wright brothers no one had ever done. It's funny, Bobby, because either people either demonize or deify the Wright brothers. Either they're these great American inventors or these, these rapacious, greedy capitalists. And in fact, like most truths, it was somewhere in between. So I really had, so my editor turned out to do me an enormous favor because the book had a lot more heft having the Wright brothers in it than it would have just with the exhibition flyers. And can you talk about the method of the book, how you wove those two stories, those two threads together? Uh, it's, I, 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 that, you know, that's a difficult question because it's something you do in the craft of what I do. You, you, it is a sense, this, I don't mean this to sound obscure, but writing, creating a story, creating a, a, a narrative that people want to read that moves, what you choose to put in, what you, 
what you leave out as extraneous. There's a lot of touch involved. What I saw here was that the general, the, the panoply of events and people that played into early flight, there was no question it was a great story. It, really a compelling story, fascinating, filled with personalities that were utterly wonderful. The, the, law, the patent case was, was not done in any of the previous books, not to any great extent. And also, the Wright's spectacular failures as businessmen was not dealt with at all. So when when the elements are there, you just you play around and you write. You know, somebody said, "How often do you read a manuscript before you send it into your editor?" And it's like it's over a hundred times because every time you go through, you're seeing something that either should be expanded a little bit, or taken out, or changed, or moved. So there's just a lot of touch that has to do with it. I, I wish I could give you a better a better answer, but that that's the one that actually is the truth. Well, and it definitely works together well. And, and it seems, as you said, you're, you're very grateful to your editor for pushing you in the direction of the rights and then discovering this epic battle um, in the courts over the patent. And um, I guess I had always just assumed the rights had obtained a patent for a flying machine and then had it for their statutory term, but the story was much more complex than that as yeah. related in the book, and and so to sort of, as a, as a jumping off point, the... They never got a patent for a flying machine, you know. The right, patent that right. they got was for a glider. It had no motor on it. The, pat, the Wright brothers for all of this Pioneer patent, which I know we're going to talk about, never got a patent for a flying machine. And and so this patent that they got is is fundamentally can be traced back to a provision in the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eight, that provides that Congress has the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So to put that plainly, Congress can give authors and inventors monopolies. In the former case, we call it a copyright. In the latter, we call it a patent. And so here we have a, a, the Wright brothers and others attempting to um, discover ways to achieve heavier-than-air flight and, um, and obtain a patent from Congress. But in all of that, and, and this is really well illustrated by the book, is, the dis, is, is two discussions uh, about these monopolies that Congress can give, and, and that is how long and what should they cover is how much of a monopoly. And that is just an intriguing um, policy question um, in, in, that, that yeah. is played out in this story. There is, there, one thing that's absolutely crucial to understand here is that the right patent was not granted based on any statute enacted by Congress. There was no law it, this was, it was purely jurisprudential, as one of my patent law friends told me, gave me the word. In, uh, I think it was 1898 or in the late 1890s, Henry Billings Brown, uh, who also wrote the separate but equal decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, in a case, Westinghouse versus Power Brake Company, uh, Boyden Power Brake Company, defined a pioneer patent created from nothing just by on the court's belief that anyone who comes up with a, a radically new system, something that, that leaps 
that takes the art and makes kind of a gap leap, a quantum leap, deserves a patent that not only covers the specific invention, but also covers all sorts of ancillary applications that other people might come up with. So the Wrights sought a patent and was granted a patent, not on wing warping, which was their means of controlling an aircraft, but on every way, every means of controlling an aircraft that could subsequently be invented. Curtis and the people the Wrights sued were not using their system. And Curtis in particular was using ailerons, which is what we use today, which he developed, although it seemed to be an Alexander Graham Bell's idea. And the Wrights sued based not on their own, not on someone stealing their idea, but based on the breadth that the court had granted to patent holders in, of certain kinds of inventions. And so that breadth question, it, 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 as I said, it sort of is, is a related or analogous at least to the term because um, how long it is is a similar thing to how, how broad it is. And, exactly. uh, and, and I like um, one of my favorite expositions on the subject of how we make that choice and or here in this instance how that court was attempting to expand the breadth of these so-called pioneer patents or to recognize broader patents in the pioneer context is um, a great exposition of that is Macaulay's speech on copyright in the House of Commons on February 5th, 1841. So the House of Commons is deciding whether to extend the term of copyright. And this is something that happens um, frequently in the United States, but we don't get as good of, as speeches on it. Um, and, and as he puts it, the principle of copyright is this. It is a tax on readers for the purpose of giving bounty to writers. The tax is an exceedingly bad one. It is a tax on one of the most innocent and most salutary of human pleasures, and never let us forget that a tax on innocent pleasures is a premium on vicious pleasures. I admit, however, the necessity of giving a bounty to genius and learning. In order to give such a bounty, I will willingly submit even to this severe and burdensome tax. Nay, I am ready to increase the tax if it can be shown that by doing so, I should proportionally increase the bounty. And that's really the rub here is... is we is, never get speeches. We never get speeches like that in Congress. Have you noticed that? I, it's, it, is a, it is a perennial disappointment that we do not have a, a Macaulay in Congress uh, to, to give speeches like that. I, I agree. Um, but, but ostensibly, this just judicial decision was hoping to increase the bounty of something, and that being uh, more pioneering patents, Right. Well, I don't, I don't know. But if you if you really need to discuss this, you've got to take a step back. Every economic system begins with free trade. You have no law regulating anything. People are trading one with another. Laws are enacted, statutes are enacted, controls are enacted, in order to deal with abuses. The the essence of a patent says, if a person has put in time and often a great deal of money into developing an idea, he or she should have the benefit of that idea and not simply have it stolen by someone else. So without the patent system, what you have is the ability of someone who has spent no put in no time and spent no money simply copying the idea and selling it. So even for the most 
even for the most passionate defenders of free trade, the patent system is a control that almost everyone, probably not everyone, but almost everyone agrees is necessary. And how much of that control you give, how long, how broad, how specific, that those become policy questions. Those are no longer questions of philosophy, because once you've instituted a patent system, you have agreed that a person who develops an idea should be able to benefit from it economically, because that's what this is all about. But it is a question of what serves what serves the public, what serves the, what serves the technological advancement best. If your patents are too narrow, no one can build on the initial idea. And if your patents are not narrow enough, people can come and steal it. And that, as you said, is the rub. That is the, that is the problem that, con that continually faces patent courts and patent examiners, and we're seeing now with Apple and Samsung and all the, all the patent infringement suits that you have in, in modern technology. And so as a starting point, having done all of this research on and a great exposition of the process by which the Wrights did their initial investigations leading to their successes at Kitty Hawk, did, did it seem, was it evident that the patent system, not necessarily this broader pioneer patent possibility, but did the patent system as a whole seem to incent the rights to their work or the others who were working separately from the rights to do the same thing? Well, you had, it, it definitely, it, it definitely drove the rights. They, they made, they made no bones about it. They were quite open all, all through their correspondence. In fact, Wilbur Wright's last letter before his death in May of 1912 was not to his brother, not to his father, not to his sister, he never married, but to one of his patent attorneys, complaining about the loss of revenue that was, had been engendered by the suit dragging on so long. So there's no question about the rights and their desire for a monopoly. But for everyone else, you, got, you have this kind of dichotomy between the open source people, kind of like the people who do Firefox and Linux today, and people who were working with the idea of patenting something and making a lot of money from it. So it was the, the technology, the, the, tech, the race to technology back in 1905 you know, to 1915 was pretty much the same as the race to technology today. And some of the patent suits were just as absurd as the Apple-Samsung suit over a curve in the iPhone. And while all of this is playing out, it, it, you know, you've got copyright and patent, but there is a, uh, a group of innovators, as you relate in your book, who are operating without any sort of protection at all um, yes. for their innovations. And that's the, these, these exhibi exhibitionists, these birdmen who were especially Lincoln Beachy, all the time coming up with new ways to fly these crafts and to get them to do new things and that they had no protection at all, but that didn't seem to stop them from innovating. No, that's, an, that's a very interesting point, because all these exhibition flyers began simply flying other people's airplanes and were not attempting to innovate at all, so obviously there's no patent that they would seek. But as flying became more sophisticated, and it became more sophisticated incredibly quickly, by, by 1910, 
aviation really states from 1907, not from 1903. And in three or four years, they had gone from an air for an altitude record of 400 feet to 12,000. All sorts of stuff went on. The exhibition flyers started making improvements on not all of them, but some of them started making improvements on their own. But it never occurred to them to seek patents. It, they the, were it, they they were in it simply for the adventure, for the joy. Some wanted to make money, and a lot of the things they did to improve the airplanes was so they wouldn't get killed. But it was you had that was an entirely different mentality than people like the Wright brothers and many other people who were making airplanes to sell and wanted to make a lot of money from it. And, and there was also the the exhibitionists were in, in especially Lincoln Beach who were innovating not not on the crafts themselves but on the manner in which they were piloting them. So they would come well, up with it, new. Yeah, but in that, in that, there's no then there's no patent issue at all. And, you know, and, how you, but you can't patent how I fly an airplane. And and how did that you know w- w- comparing the amount of innovation that was going on in how to fly an airplane versus how to build one where you have one with a patent system and one without. Um, w- w- do you, do you see differences in in the two between how motivated people were and the one? And no, no. In this case, in this case, it was so early in the game that everyone was looking to incorporate, with, with the exception, by the way, of the Wright brothers, who did not incorporate improvements because they had become so focused on the litigation that they stopped innovating altogether. But people like Glenn Curtis, for whom we owe wheeled landing gear and ailerons and the steering wheel instead of a tiller to steer, he was the first man to land uh, to land an airplane on a ship, the first man to figure out how to take off from the water. These innovations were all certainly to sell airplanes, but also because the art was so new that the, the curve was so st- was so sharply upward, you could you could come up with a new idea, and it changed everything. As aviation became more mature, you make improvements, but they but they're much more subtle and had much less of a dramatic change in the art. So you have a flyer. I, I'll give you one example. Lincoln, they used to have something on the front of the a front elevator, which is like two little wings that stick out in front of the pilot. And the rudder is in the back and the wings. And so, so it looked like, if you, if you looked at the top of an airplane, it looked like a T. Beachy crashed, as they did all the time, and the front elevator broke off. And, you, and they thought they needed it to get extra lift. Beachy took the plane back up without the front elevator, and it flew better. Within six months, everyone had taken front elevators off their airplanes and were figuring out ways to generate lift just from the wings. So you had this, and Beachy never got a dime for this. Of course, Beachy was making more money in a day than most Americans made in a year from flying, so he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, poor. But that's an example of how this innovation just took off from an accident. And, and so moving through the process of, of the story of, of the rights, it, it, you know, it begins with the story that I think everyone is at least somewhat familiar of at, at Kitty Hawk and the, 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 in the building the wind tunnel, developing the airfoils and, and, and getting the, 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 um, the craft, the heavy than aircraft to take off. Um, but the, the, the one, the wonderful thing about the book is you realize that was only the very 
beginning of the story in some ways for the rights. And the very next thing they set out to do was to obtain the patent. And, and the, to, to start with, the, the most interesting thing I found was how secretive the rights were following 1903. Yes, they, 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 didn't, they didn't fly in completely in secret. What they did, they flew in December 17th, 1903. And then they returned to Ohio, rented a, rented a field, and went about improving their airplane. And, and the first thing they did was they hired, they had filed for a patent in 1902 for the glider. Again, they never filed for a patent with, for an aircraft with a motor on it. They had filed for a patent in 1902 for their glider with this principle of control of wing warping, and they had been turned down. And people in Dayton told them, you've got to get a patent lawyer. So they went out and got this guy, Harry Tolman who immediately filed for a patent and told them, don't put a motor on it because in the patent application, because that will make it much more complicated. You will have to demonstrate this for the patent examiners, and it'll take longer. Just do it for the means of control, which they did. It was finally granted in 1906. Until that patent was granted, the rights did not want anyone or anyone of, that mattered to see them fly. They did a little at Huffman Prairie for a while in 1904. By 1905, they had stopped flying altogether. They were so, so obscure and so unknown that in 1906, when a Brazilian coiffier named Alberto Santos Dumont flew a glorified box kite, basically bounced it from about 200 yards in the Bois de Boulogne, he was called the first to fly. And by the way, Brazilian children to this day are... are told that Alberto Santos Dumont was the first to fly. The Wright brothers were known as bluffers because they were, they thought, uh, in Europe they said that these people never flew. Finally, in 1908, Wilbur and Orville, Wilbur mostly, understood that you were never going to sell an airplane. You refused to demonstrate. He took it over to Europe, and it was amazing. They, people, they, went, they went from laughing stocks to gods in essentially four to six weeks. Because people saw Wilbur fly, and they had never imagined anything like this. But all of this secrecy really ruined the rights, because even though in 1908 they had the best airplane, by 1909 they didn't, and by 1910 their airplanes were obsolete. And while it seems like this was so counterproductive, all of this secrecy waiting until the, they, they'd applied for the patent and waiting until it was granted before they showed anyone, but then subsequently, even with all the secrecy they did, um, is, is, am I right that a German court actually holds that something that Wilbur Wright had disclosed in a in a um, in, in a in a publication had pre- would prevent him from obtaining a patent in that country? Yeah, that was, a, that was a peculiarity of German patent law, that if you had published anything about what you were doing, not, you, didn't, you didn't have to give away plans or anything, but just even alluded to what you were doing, you could not get a patent. And Wilbur, not, it wasn't his idea, an associate persuaded him to write two articles for the Journal of Western Engineers or something like that, that had been reprinted in Germany. And because of that, the, the rights patent suit, because they, they brought patent suit in France and Germany as, in addition to the United States, was 
was thrown out. In France, they kind of won, but it dragged on forever because the peculiarity of the French patent system was they could never decide anything. And in the United States, they won their patent suit against Curtis and then won the appeal, but never collected a dime in royal and never collected a dime in damages. So the that brings up this interesting international component before turning to the to the patent in the United States itself, where you have several countries deciding whether to give the rights a patent, and in the parlance of, of some, whether or not to allow the rights to tax other people who might want to fly. Right. And that, that brings up the interesting issue of whether, uh, whether or not there was sort of a race to the bottom here, that any country that wanted to reward the rights would – in some ways be um, diminishing flying, so maybe just let the other countries uh, reward the white rights and then um, and in, in, instead is is that what seemed to be happening or um... no I, I don't I don't think so I, I, you know, you're dealing you're dealing with governments each of whom believe their system and their focus and their system of laws is better than anyone else's and particularly when dealing with Germany and France, they essentially couldn't agree on anything. No, I think what you had here was every was the rights attempting to do this in a more sweeping way, and then the local, if you will call it a, a different country, a, the local jurisdictions varying, and the, and a different set of the rights have to deal with a different set of challenges in each country. They became so frustrated with the French courts, for example, that they essentially that that, that suit was never really fully adjudicated and germany they lost they, well they won then they lost and so and then of course once the war started then all of this became moot in the united states as well but it, i don't i don't see this as any kind of I, there's no overview here each the, the rights be, by choosing to pursue these suits in different countries they took on the distinct possibility that three different legal cases, and it was four or five actually, were going to have to be adjudicated in different ways. And it turned out to be not a particularly good strategy for them. And, and speaking of strategy, so going to going to the patent itself, is they, they patent the method of control yeah. um, rather than in, in a specific method of control. So they, don't, they, they make two judgments, it seems. The first judgment is they decide to patent um, only a method of control rather than attempt to get something broader, which, of course, brings in the question of how likely it would get granted or how long. But then the other thing that they don't do, and maybe this is just looking back, it's easier to see, is they patent one method of control. They don't say, okay, we now know we can do this. Now let's come up with all of the methods of control that we could think of and test those. To. Their patent covered all. They didn't need to do that. Now, from a practical standpoint, from a business standpoint, yes, they should have, they should have realized that wing warping, their method, method was a technological dead end, and that they should have moved to ailerons. But they didn't need to do any of this. Their patent, they were granted a patent that covered all of these different methods, even though they had never even conducted a single experiment with any of them. So they didn't need to do this. The, the rights got absolutely everything they wanted in the patent. The right patent essentially gave them the, the, the right, you will excuse the play on words there, to get licensing fees from every airplane that went into the skies. 
So now the patent is granted, and as you said, it was it, according to the Pioneer patent case, it was incredibly right. broad. And and now, as you said, they have this right sort of up in the air somewhere. There is a thing called a right to, to get these licensing fees. Um, and then sort of everything else happens. And, and then you see this sort of transactional component to the patent system, which is the money doesn't come in automatically. So there's people flying at all of these different right. exhibitions. And the first phase is presumably the rights would were to show up and ask for a, a licensing fee and negotiate. Which they it. did, which they did regularly. And, and, and in some cases they were they were successful, and in many cases, see, because wing warping was such a specific system, and because flying moved past it so quickly, other. Aviators and innovators said, this is absurd. Your patent does not cover our system. So it wasn't simply that people were running around corners trying to avoid giving the rights money. They genuinely believed that the right patent, that trying to enforce the right patent on more sophisticated systems was an absurdity. And the rights chased in court, chased all these other Aviator, aviation companies and, and innovators to the point that their system became that much more obsolete. So in the end, all, even though they won in court, their, the, right, uh, the right airplane company failed, where Curtis's thrived. And by the way, there's a parallel case in, in automobiles, which is what, what I'm doing now, where the, the holders of the Selden patent pursued Henry Ford, and they won initially, and that, although that was reversed on appeal. But their companies folded, and Ford thrived. So the lesson here seems to be that when you're in a technological race, and you are, I mean, I hate to say this to a lawyer, but when you're, if you choose to litigate rather than innovate, you will probably end up paying a steep price for that. And when when you look at the attempts to negotiate the licenses, and obviously there's an incentive for people to avoid them, but it would have seemed there would have been incentive for the rights to try and get some people to pay licenses to construct aircraft because the, the and they did, yeah, they did, and they were successful in some cases. And and and, and was was the problem that that led to this being so stressful for them that they were asking for too large of a licensing fee? I mean, was this about amount or was this about um, just whether or not they would license? With, I mean, you know, how? No, it was, it was principal. I mean, there, the amount, the rights did, they were asking for a flat 20% of, of the retail cost of the aircraft, which is pretty, which was pretty steep. But the people who refused to pay the rights licensing fees didn't do it because it was too expensive. They did it because, in principle, they believed, and they really believed, that the right patent could not possibly cover what they were doing. And by the way, the problem with technology, again, when you go to court, these other guys were right. The right patent actually did not cover, as broad as it was, it did not cover what Curtis was doing and what all sorts of other people were doing. The only reason the rights won the patent case was that the judge, a man named John R. Hazel, had no idea what flying was all about. And he, he, had, he had a choice on whose, whose argument to accept 
and he chose to accept the Wright brothers. But as it turns out, from an engineering standpoint, he was wrong. The Wright brothers' patent actually did not cover what Curtis was doing, and it's because of three-axis control, which we don't have to go into, but the Wright brothers should have lost that case. And so once they... Um they obtained the patent and they're, they're litigating it. And, and you relate that they, <clears throat> despite that early success, they seem to lose all innovative steam, especially they compared to everyone to. else. Did. Yeah, they did. They just got caught up. You know, it's, um, it's kind of, it's kind of Ahab and, and the whale with, with Wilbur and Wilbur. It's important to remember also that, that Wilbur was, these were not two equal brothers. Wilbur was the big brother in every way. And Wilbur became so obsessed with Curtis. It became so personal that uh, he just got out of the shop entirely. In 1909, they took, the Wright brothers took in investors. And J.P. Morgan started the ball rolling, the chairman of U.S. Steel. They got the Belmonts, the Vanderbilts, this amazing array of business talent and money. And that the, corp, the right corporation, the right company, was specifically structured so Wilbur would go back to the work, to the shop and, and innovate. And he never did. He was so obsessed with the legal case that he chased Curtis until it killed him in May of 1912. And, and, and you say it killed him, and, and it, in, by that you mean specifically? Just ran, it ran him down. In fact, in 1913, a year afterwards, Orville gave a a, a interview to the New York Times that he blamed Curtis and Curtis's unwillingness and Curtis's, you know, uh, um, perfidy at avoiding, avoiding these fees for killing his brother. Wilbur was 5'10", he was about 140 pounds. He got typhoid fever uh, eating possibly tainted clam broth at the end of April 1912. And at the end, by the end of May, he was dead. And but he had worn himself down so much. If you read his letters, he had just exhausted himself going from one one venue to another, filing depositions, testifying, observing testimony, giving notes to the lawyers. He absolutely put himself in the position that any illness would have killed him, and, and one finally did. And so there is this obvious lesson of the of the of the, the way the rights conducted their business and 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 the judgments that can be made from that but there's all those are not the only uh business associations so to say in in that are related in depth in the book in fact there's several um partnerships that are formed and and, and many of them uh go sour um and most most of those i think that ever had anything to do with augustus moore herring uh, (laughs) went that way um and in, in researching all of these other par- or partnerships in early flight, what was the driving force that caused so many of them to, to, to not go well? They were terrible business people, Bobby. That, you know, the fact that you are a brilliant scientist doesn't make you a good businessman. You know, I like to think I'm a decent writer, but I can't sculpt. <laughs> you know, I can't paint. And the, this notion that we have that someone who is really bright you know, even or a genius like an Einstein can go out into the world and do other kinds of things is simply wrong. Curtis was absolutely naive in business and allowed himself to be con- Augustus Moore Herring was a fascinating character. He was very, very smart, and 
if he had if he was a little less bitter he could have been one of the great innovators in early aviation but he had this sense of injustice that people were trying to cheat him so his he he actually made improvements on a number of different early gliders particularly but that wasn't good enough so he pretended to have cre- to have invented things which he had never invented at all and then he told Curtis that he held patents that predated the right patent and Curtis without ever asking to look at the actual patent took his word for it formed a company with him and Herring proceeded to fleece him 10 ways from Sunday so you have all of this and the Wright brothers were dreadful business people for the reason that I detailed which is the you know, instead of going into the shop and do and making the products when you had Vanderbilt and Belmont and a whole slew of Wall Street people and business people ready to go out and sell them, Wilbur chose to run the company himself, make the make management decisions, and they were his investors were furious, by the way, and ultimately bailed out on on Orville. Wilbur was already dead. So the reason these partnerships failed was you were dealing with people who were utterly incompetent in the boardroom, even though they were brilliant in the shop. And now the the irony to um, Herring fleecing um, Curtis Tenways to Sunday at the outset is then eventually Herring's heirs um, recover from Curtis's heirs for for Curtis allegedly fleecing Herring, right? In the in, in the well, argument. yeah, Herring, Herring's people. Herring, Herring died. Herring. Uh, Herring went. Herring was one. Was this fascinating character? He either, you know, he either believed his own his own fantasies, or he thought other people would. But after all was said and done, he actually sued Curtis based on all of these patents that never existed, and because the case dragged on so long, Herring died in 1926, and Curtis died in 1930, and it got so it was so ridiculous that the Curtis family decided it was easy to settle and give the Herring heirs a certain amount of money than continue the case, which is you know something we obviously see a lot in say malpractice. So you had a, you had a similar situation where it was easier and cheaper to settle and forget about it than continue a lawsuit which would cost you a great deal of money even if you ultimately won. Well, so. The next book you mentioned briefly, what, what, tell us about your next project. I'm doing a book called Horseless, which is about the development of the automobile age. And that will, in the same as, as uh, Birdman focused on the, the Wright Curtis suit, this will focus on the Selden Ford suit. And I, I, again, what I'm trying to do is to use these cases as a backdrop to look at the process of innovation in, in general. And Henry Ford is, again, an amazing character, very, very much like Steve Jobs. Henry Ford never invented anything, did not invent the assembly line, despite, did not invent the modern automobile. But he was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant marketer, and he was a brilliant improver, just like Jobs. He could, he could look at something and say, this is how we should do it to make it more commercial. This is how we should do it to make it more appealing to our, our potential buyers. So I'm having a great deal of fun doing it. I'm about half done with the book. Uh, I'll probably hand it in by the end of the year, and it should come out sometime in 2015. 
and we'll look forward to that, and hopefully we can have you on New Books in Law again. Well, Thank you. I would love to do it. That's all the time we have for this episode. Stay iTuned for the next New Books in Law podcast. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at CLEQuality for updates on upcoming episodes. 